0: Good morning, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Let's go ahead and open in a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this week. We want to thank you for bringing us through another week to see Shabbat, uh, the ending of the week and the time that we are to set aside for you, to focus on you and to just rest in you. We thank you for the season that we're about to enter in tomorrow night at sunset, and we pray that we would take it seriously, that we would truly examine our hearts Father, that we would be found righteous in your sight through the blood of Yeshua. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, Shabbat Shalom. Glad all of you could make it. Rosh Hashanah, the first of the high holy days, will begin tomorrow evening at sunset. Tomorrow night also begins what are often called the days of Ah. That's a 10-day period that begins on Rosh Hashanah and continues through to Yom Kippur they're also known as the ten days of repentance. This is a time for us to really take stock of our lives, to reflect back on where we may have missed the mark over the past year, and identify areas we need to change in the upcoming year. We should be asking forgiveness of those that we've offended, and we should be seeking to grow closer to our Lord each and every day. It's traditionally held that judgment on each person is pronounced on Rosh Hashanah, but that it is not made absolute until Yom Kippur. Therefore, these 10 days of awe give us one last chance to mend our ways in order to alter God's judgment in our favor. During these 10 days, we should be encouraged to begin the introspection and the preparation that we began at the beginning of the month of Elul stepping it up up a notch as we get closer to our date and our appointment with Adonai, our judge. And repentance is a major part of that process and that preparation. This morning, what I want to do is look at what repentance is and what repentance is not. And it might be a little surprising to some folks when you see what that answer is. We'll also look at why repentance is so important. I want to begin by telling you a true story This is someone that I used to work with many years ago, and it'll give you some food for thought as we work through this lesson this morning. And I've used this story before, and it's just such a perfect example of repentance and what true repentance is and what repentance is not. So I want to use it again for those of you who have heard it. Please forgive me. Just like the woman at the well that Yeshua encountered in Samaria, this lady was living with a man to whom she was not married. One of our mutual friends went to her one day and asked her how she reconciled the lifestyle she was living with her Christian faith, and her response very quickly was, I get up every morning and ask for forgiveness. I want you to ponder this as we go through this lesson this morning. Is that kind of response true repentance? Is repentance simply asking for forgiveness, or is there something more to it? And for now, I just want to plant that seed, and we'll talk more about that a little later this morning. But first, I want to briefly talk about Rosh Hashanah itself. That's the and One thing that's really important about this, that is the only, only feast that occurs on the first day of the month. And that's an important fact, and I'll explain why. Think back to the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. Five of them were foolish, and they didn't take oil for their lamps when they went out to meet the bridegroom. So they... We're not really prepared to meet the bridegroom, but five were wise. They took oil, and they were prepared. One very interesting fact in this story is in verses 10 through 13, which says, But while they were going off to buy oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Now later, the other virgins came, the five that were not prepared saying, sir, sir, open up for us. But he replied, amen, I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, stay alert, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You might be wondering what this story has to do with Rosh Hashanah, and perhaps why I find those two verses so interesting. Here's why. In ancient Israel, the exact night on which the new moon would appear was uncertain due to an irregular number of days in the lunar cycle. We estimate it to be 28, but be honest with you, the average is a little more than 29 days. And that's why you see a leap year in our Western calendars. You also see in the biblical calendar that the month of Adar is repeated. You have Adar 1 and Adar 2 every so many years to recalibrate and adjust the calendar because of that irregularity. That irregularity meant that designated Jewish authorities had to watch closely for the sighting of the new moon, since they didn't know the exact day when it would appear. They knew the season. They knew it was around the corner. It could be any time, but they didn't know the exact day until that moon appeared. When they would spot it, they'd sound the shofar to alert the people that the new month had begun, and that blast would carry throughout the Judean countryside. Signal fires would then be lit, to go from hill to hill announcing the arrival of that new moon. The new month had begun. Scripture tells us very little about the feast that we call Rosh Hashanah, except that we are to sound the shofar. But the truth is that we don't just sound the shofar for the sake of sounding the shofar. There's actually a lot more to it than that. The sound of the shofar is a reminder to us to repent, because Rosh Hashanah represents the day of repentance. It's a time for us to take stock of our spiritual condition and begin to make the necessary changes to ensure that the upcoming year will be one that is pleasing to Adonai. And that brings me to the answer of the question I raised a few moments ago. The commonality between the story of the 10 virgins and Rosh Hashanah is this. All feasts except Rosh Hashanah fall within their respective months. That gives the people time to adequately prepare. Once the month starts, they know exactly when that feast will occur. In the case of Rosh Hashanah, however, the people had to be prepared for its arrival because they did not know exactly when it would occur. They were waiting expectantly to hear that shofar sound to know that the new month had arrived. Same as with the ten virgins, they had to be prepared to meet their bridegroom as they waited to hear the sound of the shofar announcing his arrival. We, as believers, are like those ten virgins, with the exception that we're waiting for the return of our bridegroom, who is Yeshua. And we need to be prepared at all times, because we're told in Scripture that we will not know the exact day, we will not know the exact hour, but we will know the season. So, it's imperative that we be ready, that we be like those five wise, wise virgins, rather than being caught by surprise. That's why we celebrate these feasts year after year. In many respects, they are a, an annual rehearsal for that time, and they allow us to be ready to meet Him. And we're going to talk a little bit about that next week, so stay tuned. These ten days of awe that we're about to enter into give us an additional opportunity to prepare ourselves as we look forward to our appointment with the judge of the world, God himself, for the purpose of being judged. Less than two weeks from now, we will celebrate the feast of Yom Kippur, a day that the ancient people would have looked forward to because it was a time when God gave them a very special gift, the gift of forgiveness. We as believers in Messiah Yeshua should also look forward to this time because it's a reminder of what God has done for us through the atoning work of Yeshua. We should not simply take our forgiveness for granted. That's too easily done. To be honest, we often find ourselves not truly appreciating the great price that Yeshua paid for our sins and even taking his sacrifice for granted. That was definitely not the case during temple times. Back then, the people had a stark reminder of just how much their sins cost. Through a ritual that's described in Leviticus chapter 16, it involved two goats. One of the goats was to be slain as a blood sacrifice to symbolically cover the sins of Israel. And the second one would be taken before the priest, who would lay his hands on the head of the goat, as he confessed the sins of the people, filth, slander, blasphemy, idolatry, adultery, you name it. All of the sins of the people were transferred onto that poor, precious, innocent little goat. That second goat is often referred to as the scapegoat. It would be let out into the wilderness Set free, symbolically taking away the sins of the nation out from their midst, where it would surely die slowly without food or water. In later years, the people, instead of just setting it free in the wilderness, would actually take it to a cliff and push it over to ensure that it died. So their fear was that it would come back into the camp, and if it came back into the camp, it would bring all those sins back with it. Consider this. That second goat was so contaminated after the transfer of sins that the man who led it away actually had to bathe and wash his clothes outside of the camp before he could return to the people. And the high priest also had to bathe again after handling the scapegoat. And this tells us two important things about sin it tells us how God looks at sin, He wants it away from us, it's repulsive needs to be dealt with. And second, it shows us how associating with sin can contaminate us, even if we're not partaking in it, just being involved in it. That goat was not supposed to come back in because it would bring that sin back. We, it, even the people who handled that goat with the sins on it had to be cleansed before they could return to the people. We therefore need to take our sins seriously and repent. And while it is true that we live in a fallen world and we need to associate with people who are sinners because we're all sinners. And even those who are not repentant of their sins, we still have to associate with them so that we can be a light to them. We have to be careful and not allow ourselves to be contaminated by that sin. Something else that's important in this story is that each of these two goats played an important role. The sins of the people were covered They were covered by the blood and death of the first goat, okay? They were still there, but they were covered. The second goat, their sins were physically removed from among the people through the second goat. Now, obviously, this is a picture of our Messiah, Yeshua. He took our sins upon himself. Then he removed them with his blood as he was sacrificed outside the gates, We saw in our reading this week how seriously Adonai takes sin, as well as how immeasurable his compassion is. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, we read, When the time arrives that all these things have come upon you, both the blessing and the curse which I have presented to you, and you are there among the nations to which Adonai your God has driven you, then at last you will start thinking about what has happened to you. And you will return to Adonai, your God, and pay attention to what he has said, which will be exactly what I am ordering you to do today, you and your children with all your heart and all your being. At that point, Adonai, your God, will reverse your exile and show you mercy. He will return and gather you from all the peoples to which Adonai, your God, scattered you. If one of yours was scattered to the far end of the sky, Adonai, your God, will gather you even from there. He will go there and get you back. Adonai, your God, will bring you back into the land your ancestors possessed, and you will possess it. He will make you prosper there, and you will become even more numerous than your ancestors. And I wanted to repeat that because it was in our reading this week, and it's, it shows us how much God loves us and how unending his mercy and his compassion are when we truly repent. These people are told, you will sin, you will fall short, you will be exiled, but when you turn back to God, he's going to bring you in, and you're going to be multiplied, you're going to be even more numerous than your ancestors were, and that's how good our God is. Now let's talk about what repentance is, and its role in preparation for the high holy days, and ultimately in our preparation for Yeshua's return. Many people believe that repentance is simply asking for forgiveness, but it's really much more than that. I want you to think back to that story I opened with. Is simply starting out each day saying, please forgive me, without changing the behavior of repentance. No, because true repentance means not only recognizing your sin and confessing that sin before God, and asking for his forgiveness. So you have to do that. You have to ask for forgiveness. But it goes beyond that because you also have to turn away from that sin and no longer repeat it. If we do not take that final step of turning away, then we have not truly repented. The Hebrew word for repentance is teshuva. Let me leave that one up a minute. And that can be translated as returning. And it's important. Because in repenting and turning away from our sin, we turn back or return to the path of righteousness. For those who enjoy studying the rabbis, Maimonides lists three steps of repentance, and we've talked about these before. There's confession, which is simply acknowledging that we've done wrong, there's regret, we are remorseful and we ask for forgiveness, and a vow not to repeat the misdeed, in other words, we turn away from that sin. According to Maimonides, the one who finds himself, listen to this, the one who finds himself with the opportunity to commit the same sin again, yet declines to do so, is the true penitent one. Put another way, it's only when we have the opportunity to repeat the sin, yet we refuse to do so, that we can say we have truly repented. To bring this into the New Testament... Paul would agree with that assessment. In 2nd 2 Timothy 2:19, he stated, "The Lord knows those who are his. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness." Yeshua himself had a lot to say about this subject, and I'll give you one example. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 records the words of Yeshua at the beginning of his ministry, and those words were, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've already looked at the Hebrew word for repent, so let's now look at the Greek word because it gives us some more insight into what repentance truly is. The Greek word is, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so if I mispronounce it, please forgive me. Meta noeo, and it's composed of two parts. The first part is meta, and then we have noeo. The first part is a prefix that regularly means movement or change. The second part refers to the mind and its thoughts, perceptions, dispositions, and purposes. So the basic meaning of this word when you put those two parts together. In Greek, it means to experience a change of the mind's perceptions, dispositions, and purposes. This tells us that repentance is internal. That internal change then produces fruit that results in new behaviors. We saw a few moments ago that Yeshua's ministry began with a call to repentance in Matthew 4-7. But his, ma- his ministry didn't just begin with the command to repent. It also ended with it. Okay, Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Yeshua appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, before he returned to the Father, and he said this. So it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the removal of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. In other words, repentance applies to all people, whether in Jerusalem, specifically the Jewish people, or to the nations, the non-Jews. If we want to spend eternity without an eye, we must repent and be changed from the inside. And this season of repentance that we're now in is the ideal time to begin that process. It should therefore come as no surprise that repentance is basic to our faith. In fact, First Fruits of Zion's D. Thomas Lancaster points out in his book Elementary Principles, That repentance is one of the elementary principles listed in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 going through chapter 6 verse 2. I want to quickly read those verses and then we'll talk about how they relate to repentance. For although you ought to be teachers by this time, again you need someone to teach you the basics of God's sayings. You have come to need milk, not solid food. For anyone living on milk is inexperienced with the teaching about righteousness. He is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who through practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the basic teaching of the Messiah, let us move on toward maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. And notice that phrase, we're going to talk about that. Don't lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of trusting God, of teaching about immersions, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. We don't have time to do a detailed teaching on that passage, but if you haven't read Lancaster's book, Elementary Principles, I would strongly encourage you to do so. I also did a two-week teaching on that, um, I think it was last year or the year before last, so it's out on the archives as well. But that book is phenomenal. I would strongly encourage you to read it. But while we can't go into detail on it today, there's a few key points that I want to hit on quickly. The verses that I just read tell us to repent from dead works. Many people have an inaccurate view of what that phrase means. Many people believe that means turning from the Old Testament commandments or works of the Torah. In other words, we need to repent from keeping the law, if you can believe that one. They base that position Biblically, on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which states, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not based on deeds so that no one may boast. But guess what? That is not the true meaning of those verses, because the phrase dead works does not refer to the law. It's simply another name for sin, and we see that concept in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 19, which we read this past week. I love it when these things line up. God is so good. I mean, as I was doing this lesson, and this, that, that is one of our weekly readings. It's not one of the special readings. That was the weekly reading, and yet it's lining up with this season, so it's beautiful. But we're told in that passage, we're given the decision to choose life through obedience or death through sin and disobedience. And those verses say, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Sin, or disobedience, is the agent of death. Death came into the world through sin, as we learned in Genesis after the fall of Adam and Eve. As Ezekiel 18.20 puts it, the soul who sins shall die. And this is not just an Old Testament concept for those people who want to claim it is such. Yeshua and the apostles firmly equated death and sin. A few examples, James 1.15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But there's good news here. There is a solution to those dead works, that sin, repentance, that season we're in right now. Simply put, our solution is to stop sinning, turn around, and start walking according to God's instructions. I want to ask you a question for your consideration. If someone asked you to explain the gospel to someone who had never heard the gospel, what would you tell them? Just think about that for a second. And I don't mean to give them the definition of the word gospel, which is good news. I mean the actual gospel itself. Most of us would probably go immediately to John 3.16, and while beautiful and true, that's not really the true gospel, okay? The gospel message is much bigger than that. We see it actually began with a call to repentance. Matthew 3.2 tells us this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's where the gospel message starts with repentance. Repentance. Despite what you may have heard from some of the hyper-grace teachers, the message of repentance is throughout Yeshua's teachings and the entire New Testament. In Matthew 4, 17, we're told from that time, Yeshua began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he was preaching it. His disciples preached it throughout their lives. As another example, although many people today erroneously believe that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul, which we don't even know for sure who wrote the book. There's a lot to talk about there. But a lot of people believe that it was written by Paul to warn Jewish believers against slipping back into Judaism and Torah observance. That position is actually in direct opposition to the actual teachings of Yeshua as they're recorded in our scriptures. Remember, back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, which I'm sure many of you can quote verbatim, Yeshua declared, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So turning away from dead works simply means we turn away from sin. We don't turn away from Torah. Okay, we uphold Torah. So this brings us to the question, what is sin? The Bible defines sin as transgression of the commandments of the Torah, specifically those commandments that apply to you, since not all 613 were meant to apply to everyone. Some of those commandments were for men only. Some were for women only. Some were for Levitical priests only. Some could only be performed in the temple, which doesn't stand today. So there's a lot of different buckets of commandments. So not all of them uh, apply to every single individual. Without the Torah, we would have no way to determine whether or not we are sinning. So when we invalidate the Torah, we remove our guide and we open the door to sin. True repentance calls for a complete break with sin and the culture of sin. In the day of the apostles, the culture of sin was all around them. It was the Roman culture. We see in Galatians 5, verses, uh, yeah, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19, 19 through 21, where Paul lists the things that believers should avoid, and they would apply to all of us today. Now the deeds of the flesh are clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, indecency, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you just as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit God's kingdom. Okay, that that aligns with Yeshua's words in Matthew 5.20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is very different than what we see, unfortunately, preached by a lot of our hyper-grace preachers today. What we see from all this is that obedience to the commandments constituted the first foundational basic teaching of our Messiah, who did indeed call the people to repentance. And I know that was a long discussion about that one short passage, but there was a lot in that little passage. There's actually a lot more than we can get into today, so I would encourage you to read Lancaster's book. Something that may surprise many people is that Paul, who many claim taught against the Torah and believed in grace alone, actually emphasize the need to repent in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person Or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. It boils down to this. Those who truly love God will obey him, and they will repent when needed. We're human. We do, and we will continue to miss the mark from time to time. But because his Holy Spirit lives in us, when we do, we should feel that conviction. We should feel the need to 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 repent. I'm getting tongue-tied up here. (laughs) The need to repent to confess that misdeed, to renounce it, and to turn away from it. That concept of turning away from sin and repenting is so simple and basic that the writer of Hebrews compared it to milk, the first food that a baby ingests. So unless we've truly repented, how can we say we're a believer? So simply put, the life of a believer in Messiah begins with repentance. The response of the gospel message that Yeshua and the apostles demanded was not merely belief or confession of belief. They called for a complete revolution of the heart, a complete renunciation of the old life of sin, just as we saw in this week's Parsha. Legalistic obedience is not enough. Our obedience has to be heartfelt and sincere. Repentance also is not something that we do once, it's an ongoing discipline of constantly denying the flesh, turning away from sin, saying no to the world and its temptations, turning to the Lord, and following Yeshua. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This continued repentance is important. Unfortunately, there are some today that hold the position that when Yeshua was teaching about obedience and repentance, it was before his death and resurrection. So the people were still under law while he was teaching this. For three years he taught this, but they were still under the law. Things changed when he died and was resurrected, according to them. But I have something important I want to show you here. In what is often referred to as the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, which occurred after Yeshua's death and resurrection. We see these words from Yeshua. Yeshua starting in verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to the Galilee, to the mountain Yeshua had designated, when they saw him they worshipped, but some wavered, and Yeshua came up to them and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, then we come to verses 19 and 20, which is really the meat of this passage, for our purposes this morning, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Immersing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh. Teaching them to observe, in other words, keep and obey, all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. They were specifically instructed by Yeshua himself after his death and resurrection to observe all that he had commanded. All. All means without exception. It doesn't mean pick and choose. What means under the law? What means under grace? Because the two work together. They're not exclusive and separate from each other. I want you to ask yourself this question. If Yeshua had planned to do away with obedience and repentance, because now they're under grace so they don't have to obey the law, why did he spend those three precious years of his life on this earth teaching his disciples to be obedient? and to obey the commandments. And then, just as he was getting ready to depart the earth, he reminded them to teach others to do exactly what he had been teaching for those three years. So it doesn't even make sense. The argument, when it's held up to the light, doesn't make sense that some of these teachers are trying to make. The good news is that the kingdom of heaven is open to everyone who willingly repents, forsakes the world, and follows Yeshua. Those are words of life, and our obedience changes us into the image of our Messiah. On the other hand, as D. Thomas Lancaster points out in Elementary Principles, a gospel that teaches us to believe but doesn't teach us what we need to do and in fact discourages us from doing anything more than believing is a gospel that's stripped of its power to change lives. That stripped-down gospel has sadly produced a lukewarm religious culture that is neither hot nor cold. Remember what Scripture says about those who are neither hot nor cold. Revelation, chapter 3 and 15, and I'm sure many of you can quote this one by heart as well. It tells us, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. Oh, that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spew you out of my mouth. Those are strong words. Lancaster makes an interesting comparison of that passage in Revelation to the parable of the man at the wedding banquet. I don't know if you've ever put those two together or not, but this is pretty fascinating. This is the man who went to the wedding banquet without wedding clothes, and it can be found in Matthew chapter 22 verses 1 through 14 so bear with me because I want to read it because it's it's really intriguing beginning in verse 1 of chapter 22 Yeshua answered and spoke to them again in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who made a wedding feast for his son he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they wouldn't come Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who were invited, look, I've prepared my meal. My oxen and fattened calves are killed and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But paying no attention, they went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest grabbed his servants, humiliated them, and killed them. Now the king became furious. Sending his troops, he destroyed those murderers and set fire to their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So go into the highways and byways and invite everyone you find to the wedding feast. And those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look over the guests, he saw a man there who wasn't dressed in wedding clothes. Friend, he said to him, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But the man was silent. Then the king said to his servants, tie him up, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. According to Lancaster, that banquet symbolizes the kingdom of God. The book of Revelation, in chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, tells us what the wedding clothes represent. And that passage says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen, here it is, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Lancaster explains that the man without those wedding clothes symbolizes the man who thinks he will be part of the kingdom without repenting. But he will not. Have you ever heard it explained that way? It makes perfect sense when you go back and look at it. As the Apostle Paul stated in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. It's therefore critical that we not only communicate the message of salvation to others when we present the gospel, so this is what the gospel is. It's also the message of repentance. It has to have both elements. If it doesn't, it's not the true and full gospel. During this time of year, we focus on repentance, but repentance can and should be done whenever we have strayed, rather than waiting for one time a year during the special season. There's an urgency to repent because we do not know when we may meet the Lord face to face, either because of our death or because of his return. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 reminds us of this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And Romans 2.4 adds the following. Are you perhaps misinterpreting God's generosity and patient mercy towards you as weakness on his part? Don't you realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you into repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead us into repentance. That's why he's kind to us. Okay, Acts chapter 1730 tells us this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repentance. Acts. This is after Yeshua's return to the Father. It okay? goes back to that whole thing about this... Law versus grace. This is now under you are now under grace instead of law. Well, we're told to command. We are commanded to repent here. So, have some food for thought for anyone who have may fallen for that hyper grace teaching. When it comes to sin, there are two categories in Jewish thought. There are sins against God. Those are things such as ritual infractions, breaking the Sabbath, or eating non kosher food. Those are sins against God. Second, there are sins against other people. There are acts such as theft or slander. Jewish tradition teaches that only sins against God can be atoned for through confession, regret, and promising not to repeat the action. Sins against others, on the other hand, can only be atoned for once the wrong has been made right with the other person and forgiveness received from the victim, then you can go to God and seek His forgiveness as well. As examples, if we have harmed someone financially, we need to make restitution. If we've stolen something, we need to return it. If we've hurt someone's feelings in some way or harmed them by slandering or gossiping against them, we need to ask for forgiveness. The goal here is reconciliation. However, the truth is that we cannot control how another person will respond, but we still should do the right thing, even if our attempts are not accepted by the other person. You may be asking, what if someone's hurt me and they haven't sought my forgiveness? So what should you do? You should forgive them anyway, even if they haven't asked for it. Matthew 6.15 tells us this, But if you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your transgressions. Pretty heavy words. If we expect God to forgive us when we sin against him, then we must be willing to forgive others when they sin against us, even if they do not ask for us to forgive them. It's been said that forgiveness is a gift that one gives himself. And there's a lot of truth in that. When we forgive another person, we free ourselves from the bondage to unforgiveness, which can be an, an impediment to our relationship with God. We're no longer indebted to that other person, and we're free. Unforgiveness puts us in bondage to someone else. Have you ever thought about that? It hurts us much worse than it hurts that other person. Just as with everything else in our lives, there are consequences when we repent. But Guess what? The consequences in this case are good consequences. Because when we repent, we have a desire to please God, to flee from evil and live lives that are pleasing to him. Both Psalm 119, 104 and Psalm 105 tell us this. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then Psalm 1611 tells us this, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. His word and his power are his escape, or our escape from this. We cannot take our sins lightly. When we sin, we dishonor God. So we need to measure sin by God's standards, not by man's. In man's eyes, we categorize sin, oh, that sin's not so severe, or that one is, and this, you know, and we excuse sin. Sin is sin. Let's just face it, sin is sin. After we truly repent, we need to accept the fact that our sins are forgiven. Some people struggle with that. Being forgiven, another important part, doesn't always guarantee that we will not have to suffer negative consequences that result from that sin or that we will escape God's punishment for what we've done. But we can have confidence that God has forgiven us because of the work of Yeshua. Repentance has been compared to a medicine that has a bitter taste. Ever taken any of that yucky stuff? Ugh But it heals and it nourishes. If we know the medicine will work, we'll tolerate that bitter taste. We're reminded in Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So repentance, as difficult as it may be, sometimes there's times of refreshing coming when we do it. There is a positive outcome. Forgiveness is essential to our life as a believer. There is a passage that tells us To be angry, but not to let the sun go down on our anger. What this tells us, it's okay for us to become angry, but we shouldn't harbor it. We shouldn't hold on to that anger and let it fester and grow. We need to deal with it, forgive, and move on. When we hold on to that anger, we do a lot of things. It can grow. It can become bitterness. It will impact our lives, both spiritually and physically it will also impact relationships that we have with other people and another thing it will do and this one is pretty serious if we hold on to that anger guess what we're doing we're opening the door to demonic influences people forget about that it's very easy because we don't see with our eyes the spiritual world but it's it's real do not just suddenly appear in the life of a believer they can influence us only if we open that door and invite them in and we do that when we sin when we sin we open that door and we're saying come on in do whatever our sin is an open invocation, invitation to demonic influences when we refuse to forgive we open that door to anger to bitterness, and so forth. And that spreads like a cancer to other people. Go back to our Parsha. Like I said, I love it when God's word lines up with what we're teaching. Uh, It's just amazing. We read a very important passage. I don't know how many of you, this jumped out at you when you read it, but Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, says this. Keep pursuing shalom with everyone, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses out on God's grace and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and thus contaminates many. So it isn't just us that bitterness contaminates. It contaminates many. Our anger, our bitterness, and so forth does impact others. Because we go around and we talk about it. We tell others and we influence the way that person feels about the person we're talking about. It also manifests itself in other ways. We're dealing with people who are not involved with the situation, but we've got so much anger and bitterness in us that we explode at them and they've done nothing. So it really does manifest itself. We've got to be willing to let go of it and forgive and move on. And I know this from experience because many years ago, I carried unforgiveness and anger for a long, long time. I can still tell you exactly where I was and how I felt when God removed that off of me. I literally, literally felt something lift off of me. I mean physically lift. It wasn't just a spiritual experience. It was also a physical experience. This is real. And when we carry unforgiveness around and resentment, we have a weight on us. And we have to release it to him. And as we prepare to end this lesson, I encourage each one of us to take some time over the next few days to think about those areas of our lives where we have missed the mark this past year. The Holy Spirit plays an important part in our life as a believer. And one of his roles is to reveal to us sins and give us the power to overcome that sin. We're all human. Therefore, we're not perfect. We will mess up from time to time. You don't need to beat yourself over the head with it. Acknowledge it, confess it to God, and turn away from it. And his Holy Spirit was sent here for a reason. One of those reasons is to convict us of those sins, to lead us to repentance, and to help us stay on that straight and narrow by empowering us to be obedient. We cannot make the changes we need to make alone. The Holy Spirit will give us the power to do so if we will ask him and submit ourselves to his will. As we continue towards Yom Kippur, we all should determine to rid ourselves of sin by submitting ourselves to God's spirit. Let's repent of our sins, truly repent, seek forgiveness from those we may have harmed, and forgive those who have hurt us whether or not they ask for it. And what I want to do now is I want to close with one of the Selecote prayers. It's titled Elohim Atah Yadah Atah. So, so, oh God, you know of my foolishness and my sins. All my transgressions are not concealed from you. When I think of the enormity of my wrongdoing, I feel like water that has been spilled and as if all my bones have come asunder. Heed the sound of my supplications. At times of anger, recall your mercy, for he who knocks at the gates of your compassion, who stands as supplicant servant, asking for your forgiveness. My eyes open before the night watches to tell of your greatness. I shall proclaim your might to the generation, your power to all who are yet to come. Uncover my eyes so that I may see wonders from your Torah. They shall sing out your name, those who yearn for the hidden end. Return to their dwellings, the exiles who are spread out in all the corners of the earth. For you are Hashem, God, Lord of hosts. God of hosts, bring us back. With wondrous things may you respond to us in righteousness. Gaze upon the face of your anointed one and see our protector. And all who trust in you shall rejoice. Forever shall they joyously sing. Anenu, answer us, our father, Anenu. Answer us, our Creator. Answer us. Answer us, our Redeemer. Answer us. Answer us, Elohim, Abraham. Answer us. Answer us, the one feared by Isaac. Answer us. Answer us, Mighty One of Jacob. Answer us. Answer, Shield of David. Answer us. Answer us, who answers in time of favor. Answer us. Answer us, who answers in times of distress. Answer us. Answer us, who answers in time of mercy, answer us. Answer us, God of heaven, answer us. Answer us, God of Yeshua, answer us. Answer us in the merit of your Messiah, answer us. Answer us, compassionate and gracious one, answer us. Compassionate and gracious one, we have sinned before you. Have mercy on us. Amen. So let's prepare for Rosh Hashanah. Hope to see each and every one of you here tomorrow evening to usher in the high holy days. Shabbat Shalom.